You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It came down to three words uttered by a supporter or a attempted supporter of presidential candidate James G. Blaine, the Reverend Samuel Burchard, saying, We are Republicans and don't propose to leave our party and identify ourselves with the party whose antecedents had been rum, Romanism, and rebellion. Three little words, and once uttered, it turned the election. The Blaine campaign was finished. But why were those words so important? Why did Burchard utter them? And why didn't James Blaine, one of America's best politicians at that time, do anything to turn the situation around? We examine all of those things and try to solve a mystery of the 1884 presidential election. It's kind of something you think that's more from the television age, which is that one phrase could cost someone the presidency. It's not true that it's limited to that age, because the election of 1884 turned on it. Now, it seems very strange, but when one of the words in the phrase really invokes bigotry and hatred, and the others invoke insults, questions of patriotism, you can see why. I've discussed previously on the cast a lot about the uh, the setup of the 1884 election, but essentially you have everyone, including James Blaine, doesn't think very much that they're going to win. Here's how it's recounted in Neil Rold's Continental Liar from the State of Maine. The odds on money was betting that Blaine's opponent would be Grover Cleveland, the extremely popular governor of New York. To make the Empire State even tougher to win was the stalwart half-breed split. Conkling, this is uh, Blaine's rival in Republican politics in New York, was still a force to be reckoned with, although not as powerful as he'd once been. Finally, there was the problem of the mugwumps. In their eyes, Blaine was dishonest and devious, uncouth, despite his obvious charm and intelligence, and taking the Republican Party in the wrong direction. During the run-up to the GOP convention, a political cartoon, perhaps instigated, by all the internal foes, struck Blaine a harsh and lasting blow. It was popularly referred to as the Tattooed Man, a takeoff on a classic painting depicted was James G. Blaine in his underwear being displayed to a crowd of Republican dignitaries, and all over his body were tattooed letterings full of pejorative meetings, such as Little Rock Railroad, Mulligan Letters, North Pacific, Bonds, Corruption, Lobby, and so forth. 
But the election does go back and forth because it turns out that Cleveland has a few problems, including that he fathered a child out of wedlock. We talked about this in a previous episode in the 1884 election. Zimro Smith takes the train to Chicago. Grover Cleveland is nominated there. The next day, Smith is on the train. And it doesn't take him long to learn that during the Chicago convention where he's nominated, Grover Cleveland has told some people that he had a woman scrape in Buffalo. The conversation with either Slip to the wrong person, maybe somebody from Tammany Hall, uh, we're thinking a former speaker, that's what most historians think, that wasn't too excited about Grover Cleveland anyway because he had bucked the hall so many times. Maybe it was a necessary kind of shakedown or vetting process that was necessary for Cleveland to secure the nomination. Smith hears about it, and in a few days, he discovers that Grover Cleveland had been making payments to a woman who presumably had his child. The story's published, and all hell breaks loose. Lawyers come to Buffalo from the Blaine camp to dig up what they can. Democrats send their own lawyers to try to defend Cleveland. Even a group of mugwumps, GOPers, who are kind of in the middle here, that want to support Cleveland, send their own lawyer to the city of Buffalo to try to figure out what happened. Cleveland tells his friends, just tell the truth. He admits to the story. He says, frankly, I had this issue. The woman said that it was my child. I don't know, but I was in a law firm, and there were numerous other lawyers in that firm. Many of them were married. I was not. Relationship was consensual. Thus, I decided, Cleveland says, to take care of the payments so as to save the other law partner's trouble and also to help the woman and help the child. So he's honest and he admits the explanation. But now you have an outcry. Now you have a story. The papers now track down this woman, Maria Halpin of Buffalo, and they ask her for her side of the story. Well, she has a very different story. Cleveland, she said, forced himself on me. He, he He was a brute, and he ruined me, and he threatened to ruin me further if I ever told anyone. Well, this is enough for the Republican press, certainly, and you have some clergy who are not supportive of Cleveland. The Presbyterian minister of Buffalo issues a statement that Grover Cleveland is a corrupt, licentious man. And there's numerous attacks from members of the clergy. Republican newspapers make up additional stories that aren't even true. And since they have the one true one, they might as well just keep rolling. Charles Dana of the New York Sun says Cleveland should resign. And this is now something that's going to instill hope in the Tammany Hall people who don't really like Cleveland, that maybe either Hendricks will become the nominee or Cleveland will step down and we'll get someone else. Uh, because Dana never stops saying this throughout the election, that Cleveland is probably going to resign and should resign. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What's benefiting Grover Cleveland while this tremendously embarrassing story comes out is timing. This is a scandal that opponents may have brought out early, before he was nominated, probably would have blocked his nomination. And if it came out a week before the election, it would have sunk him. But it comes out in July, very early for 19th century elections, where usually were September, October affairs. And uh, he's even writing by the time he gets to September that perhaps the scandal business is mostly over. It's not really. And in fact, this scandal kind of equals the candidates. Cartoons of Grover scandal appear and you have the famous one. Grover Cleveland's walking down the sidewalk and is accosted by mother and child and the child saying, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? And so forceful is the scream, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? Though Cleveland tries to cover his ears, his hat blows off. But there's also some scandals that Blaine has involving an old railroad and perhaps bribery and letters that were told to be burnt and things like that. And you have a kind of even Stephen. One thing Rold points out in his book is that actually Blaine wanted to run entirely on the tariff issue. He did not like the personal issue. He did not like personal attacks on Cleveland. He thought it would backfire. And then you get to the situation where people aren't quite sure and the presidency is going to come down to a single state. And that's where I have discovered um, some random recollections from an old political reporter named William Hudson. Now, he's a reporter that in this election, he's on the Cleveland side. He talks about how um, Hudson talks about working with Senator Arthur P. Gorman, who is the head of the National Democratic Committee. He's also a senator from Maryland. On Wednesday, October 29th, 1884, this is less than a week before the election, Hudson says, I met with Senator Gorman as he descended the stairs from his room in the National Democratic headquarters. It was dull gloomy, and wearied in manner, quite the reverse of his buoyant habit. As he reached the bottom step, he said, I want to get away into the fresh air for a short time. I'm going to ride through Central Park, and I want a companion. And he says to Hudson, come with me. Well, since Hudson told us the story, we're going to join the two of them in this carriage. Because of the scandal that Grover Cleveland found himself in, many ministers reached out to him, some just to kind of offer their support and others to offer their counseling, you know, in a legitimate way. Um, Cleveland got a few ministers to cover for him, essentially. That sounds bad to say, essentially, like, look, in his private conduct, he obviously made an error. In his public, he's made none. You're, You're hiring him for a public job. So to counteract this, Blaine is going to have a meeting of ministers. The Republican managers think that ministerial visitation to Cleveland in Brooklyn was prearranged and that it was sharp politics. As a matter of fact, it was no prearrangement at all. It was a case of interference with an arranged program. The visit to Cleveland was a spontaneous movement. This one to Blaine is an organized one. The contrast of Blaine meeting with all of these holy people is just going to be sticking it to Grover Cleveland, who's experiencing this scandal. Gorman, the head head of the Democratic National Committee in charge of Cleveland's campaign here, says, The characteristic of the Cleveland campaign is its spontaneity, and that of the Blaine campaign is almost perfect organization. And spontaneity will win, Hudson asked. 
The senator smiled shrewdly as he replied, Usually organization wins. We rode up Fifth Avenue in silence for some time, the senator apparently having nothing weightier on his mind than his enjoyment of the crisp October air. Suddenly he said, Colonel Lamont, aide to Cleveland, has returned the New York canvas sheet with his report. I did not know that they had been sent to him, I replied. Yes, he seems to have great confidence in Lamont's knowledge and judgment. He has reason to, I said. No man in the state is better informed as to its political conditions. What does he report? Gorman says, It does not differ in any essential way from your examination of the same sheets or from your conclusions. Hudson reminds him, and that was that our own canvas showed a plurality of 63,000 for Blaine in the counties outside of New York and Kings. Yes, he marks it up a little bit higher. The outlook is not comforting. Everything depends on New York. We can carry the country only by carrying the state. Kings, that's the county that then and now Brooklyn is in, Kings promises us 20,000 plurality for Cleveland. But my best advices are not to count on more than 15. New York promises 60,000, but I am warned not to count on more than 40,000. That means Cleveland will be at least 5,000 behind in the whole state, I mournfully commented. It means that Cleveland will be beaten in the nation. I have felt that for some time. I regret exceedingly that I permitted myself to be persuaded to take charge of this campaign. I yielded against all my intuitions. I came away from my first visit to Cleveland and Albany after I'd consented to take charge, feeling that I had made the mistake of my life. This was frank talk, Hudson says, on the part of the leader. It should have plunged me, ardent supporter of Cleveland, into deep gloom. My own information had led me to believe that the contest in New York would be close. But I had an abiding faith that we, the Cleveland side, would pull through. This glimpse into the mind of the leader made me despair. We rode back in silence, punctuated by these remarks by Senator Gorman. I do not know whether we have done better with another candidate. It's a very difficult matter to turn a party out of power, for it has all the advantages. It has been a scandalous campaign with credit to nobody on either side, and Cleveland has not been an easy man to handle. A lot of Democrats are going to agree with Senator Gorman after this very election. As we stopped at the headquarters, the senator said, Of course, what I have said is confidential. So, you have this gloomy carriage ride. Reporter Hudson, Democratic Chair Gorman, And then he says, we're engaged in some other matters when up come the stairs in some haste. Colonel John Tracy, the head of the newspaper bureau, he plunges into the room as much out of breath by reason of his haste and excitement that he could not speak. And he can only just point to the pages of the newspaper that he's holding in his, of of soon to be newspaper copy that he's holding in his hands. Gorman took a look at the papers and on reading the words, pointed out the words that were most important. Three words. Rum, Romanism, and rebellion. A word here in explanation. So, as Hudson's account says, it was the practice of the News Bureau of the Democratic Committee to send a stenographer to follow James Blaine around and hope to capture something. And here they did. The same practice as the Democratic functions was followed by the Republican news media. 
the stenographer attends a ministerial visit to Blaine at the Fifth Avenue Hotel and had taken down the speeches made by the Dr. Reverend Burchard and by Mr. Blaine. Returning to his desk, he had written out the report and turned it over to Colonel Tracy, who ran it over in the hope that he might find something to send out to the newspapers. Gorman runs over the pages of this report and asks, Is this a verbatim report? Every word uttered is there, Colonel Tracy says. Surely, Senator Gorman says, Blaine met this remark. In other words, Blaine answered this remark. That's the outstanding thing, said Tracy. He made no reference to the words. I have confirmed that fact. This is how Hudson describes the moment. A Catholic Irishman, Tracy, and a Protestant Irishman, Gorman, with the desk between them, stood looking into each other's eyes in a mutual realization, each from his own angle of view, of the tremendous possibilities that lay in this phrase, soon to become so famous. Finally, Senator Gorman spoke, his voice cracking like the snap of a whip. This sentence must be in every daily newspaper in the country tomorrow, no matter how, no matter what it costs. Organize for that immediately, Colonel Tracy, and it must be kept alive for the rest of the campaign. Gorman then says to Hudson, if anything will elect Cleveland, these words will do it. But he also asks, how could a man so quick on his feet as James Blaine not do anything, not meet these remarks? Well, it's too late now. He cannot deal with it all. The advantages are now with us. And indeed, it would be in all the newspapers. There would be people um, plastering posters onto various fences across New York City to get the message out with these three words, rum, Romanism, and rebellion. Um, it's an archaic term, Romanism. I actually got a question uh, when I posted something on a blog site. So, I, you know, of course, what we're talking about is rum, meaning that um, they're anti-temperant. You know, you're accusing the Democrats of being anti-temperant. Romanism, you're accusing them of being not only Catholic, but also Catholic to the extent of following instructions from the Pope, from Rome. And rebellion, that, of course, the Democratic Party at this side was widely associated with the Southern cause with the bloody shirt. That's all well and good, but you're in a close election in the state of New York, and you've just tipped it with these insulting comments. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hudson says that night was a busy night at headquarters. The wires were kept hot with carrying the dispatches, the letters, the editorials from New York to the farthest corner of the country. Dispatches that would not excite political suspicion, 
or political animosities went to Republican papers. Correspondence that contained the color desired went to Democratic papers. It was anything to get the fateful sentence before the public. Senator Gorman did not go to West Virginia until late in the week, for he stayed to direct the employment of the weapon, which, as he said to Edward Cooper, Providence, in its infinite mercy, had placed in the hands of the Democrats. In two days' time, the stampede was apparent. The Republicans were helpless before it. Now, we know the story of that comment. And so, um, a few years back, in a podcast which at that time was only limited to the premium podcast, and I thank everybody who supported me at that time for it, I think it's time that we release it on the public channel, where I investigated a little bit about that rum, Romanism, and Rebellion comment. How did it come about? What was this meeting about? Who said it? What was his relationship to Blaine? And why didn't Blaine do anything? And there's a lot of conflicted stories on this most important incident that cost James Blaine the election and actually cost the Republican Party from from perhaps just running the table on presidential elections in the last half of the 19th century and allowing a Democrat into the White House. We talked about that signature event that all the textbooks say was the reason that James G. Blaine lost Grover Cleveland became president. And it was a speech by Reverend Samuel Burchard during an event with a lot of Republican clergymen, mostly Protestant, where, or all of them Protestant, where he referred to the Democrats as a party of rum, Romanism, and rebellion. And Blaine took a long time apologizing, and it sunk him. The standard narrative is that Blaine was at that meeting but did not hear the comment. And like so many things in politics, it's disputed. So we'll look at a little bit of that issue, did he or didn't he? And there was a article in a journal in the 1950s where they really looked at this in a political science journal, and it's quite interesting. Uh, at first, I think you have to understand that this event for James G. Blaine, with all of these reverends speaking for him, really was supposed to make him appear as a good moral man, and it wasn't put together by the Republicans officially all the invites were sent to clergymen in New York anonymously. Some of them actually protested that they were being used for politics, and the New York Times picked up on it. They're not a fan of James G. Blaine, the New York Times, and they said the clergymen were to be puppets. The event begins, and it's the clergy who are sympathetic to Blaine are organizing it, and the Republican Party officials are trying to stay out of it. But that means... There's a lack of organization that led to the result that happened. The intended speaker is Dr. Armitage of the Fifth Avenue Baptist Church. But as the rally's about to start, it's 9 o'clock. He's in Philadelphia. They don't hear from him. He's either ill or he's detained. They're also getting a pretty big crowd to this event because of all the invitations. There's several hundred people, pastors in the area, and also divinity students. And so... They send for Blaine to actually come to the event. It wasn't necessarily intended that he be there because of this big crowd. And there's so many people that want to meet him and don't want to be disappointed. They don't have Armitage, and they ask Dr. Samuel Bircher to make a speech. So these two events that were unplanned are going to conspire to be really bad for the GOP ticket. Bircher makes his comments, rum, Robinism, and rebellion. 
if you take the accounts of some people who were there, Charles Russell, T.C. Crawford, David Murray, these are people who knew Blaine, favorable to Blaine, wrote about the event. They all say in one way or another that Blaine didn't hear, which was his story at the time. He didn't hear Dr. Burchard's comments. His thoughts were elsewhere, one says. He was chatting with a bystander, the other says. Another observer, Edward Stanwood, who is there, kind of has an in-between. He said he probably heard it, but it would be difficult to counter Burchard, to go up to the podium and say, you know, something against what he had said about Rum Romanism and rebellion without giving an offense to this great clergy leader. It's Justice John Harlan, and you might remember Justice John Harlan from legal history. He is the dissenter in Plessy v. Ferguson. That's the court case where it ruled that, you know, you could segregate in public accommodations. Well, Harlan is that voice, the one voice on the court who disagreed with that decision, and that's why he's known in history as a defender of, of uh, civil rights Well, he's involved in this, and he's not at that event. But in 1884 in winter, after Blaine loses the election, he eats dinner with him, and uh, he has a conversation about it. And John Harlan said that uh, Blaine fully admitted that he heard the comment and that it stunned and amazed him, and that Burchard's comment went through him like a knife. But Blaine supposed no one heard, and more harm would be done by him doing something than if he actually got up and spoke and made an observation. New York Times agrees with that. Uh, Their contemporary opinion was that Blaine was unusually quick, and a comment that he made would have helped him greatly. But they said Blaine wanted the votes. So those are the two accounts. Now, John Harlan is a respected jurist, and he said he waited till after Blaine died to come out with a story, but he said that Blaine indeed did hear the comments, and others say that Blaine did not. It was a crowded room. Public address systems were not invented until the late 19-teens, so obviously there's no public address system. You have to speak really loudly in these crowds. Blaine was gregarious, as we indicated on that episode, and possible he was talking to somebody during the reverend speech, like a a good politician always going for the votes, Um, but, and then didn't hear that comment. It remains a mystery in history, uh, contested as to whether he heard it or not. She did have sexual relations with a group of men, including Cleveland and his law partner, Oscar Folsom. She has a child. The child is named Oscar Folsom Cleveland. It kind of indicates that she's not aware who's the the father, but she did say that Cleveland was. Cleveland makes payments. While nursing the child, this is one side of the story she was drinking, Cleveland is the sheriff of the county, doesn't want to get involved particularly, but he turns it over to a judge to do something about this situation. Judge has the woman committed. The boy goes to an orphanage in Buffalo. Cleveland pays the $5 a week board for that. Cleveland sets up Maria Halpin for a business in Niagara Falls. I'm not sure what the business was. She returns to Buffalo. She gets an attorney, sues Cleveland, tries to get her child back. She cannot. She fails in that legal attempt. Then she kidnaps the child, Oscar Folsom Cleveland. She's arrested for that. The boy is returned to the orphanage, and eventually the boy is adopted by a prominent family. Last we hear of um, this boy is that uh, he becomes a gynecologist, 
and dies in the 1940s, never speaks at all about this matter. There are two sides to the story, and Cleveland side does get out in history. The, the, the only thing we have from Maria Halpin is that after Cleveland becomes president for the second time in 1895, she's remarried, but she does send Cleveland a letter asking for money or she will reveal more facts about the case. Cleveland, of course, does not respond. And a third player, I, I just like his name, Zimro Smith, that so-called muckraking journalist who really was a partisan of Blaine. Uh, we don't know too much more about him. He's not recorded that much. He served in the Civil War. After this election, he's seen making a speech for high tariffs, and he's saying that the he takes wants to take it to the free traders. He's saying that the time will come when we have to use their own weapons against them and flood the area with protectionist literature as they have done with free trade literature. He makes it clear that, that we can't wait till a, a few weeks before the election. We have to make this a year-round contest. So he's a strong supporter of high tariffs. He dies in 1903. His obituary in Delta Upsilon Quarterly says, by a friend and fellow soldier, he sat by my side in college bench, and we fought in the same battles in war. Dear old brother, hail and farewell, Zimro Smith. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Remember, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash M-H-C-B-U-I-P. And if you like the podcast, you know, please tell someone about it. Spread the word. Going on 15 years, and that's been the main agent of getting new listeners is people like you telling someone else about it. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.